Heavenly Father, God, we have so much to be thankful for tonight. God, we live in a country where we can worship you freely. Father, we have roofs over our heads and food to eat. God, sometimes we take advantage of what you provide. You promised, Lord, to provide for us every single day. And sometimes things come up where we, God, we're afraid that you won't come through. Or we're afraid that, God, you won't provide. But, Father, if there's anything we can be sure of in this life, that your love stays the same today and tomorrow and the next day. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for loving us so much that you sent your son to die on a cross for us. Just because you wanted to have a relationship with us. Father, forgive us when we sin. Forgive us when we fall short and we're selfish. God, and we throw our hands up to you. God, I pray that we receive the rescue that you provide, God, and the restoration for our lives and what we've made in. God, make us holy. Make us clean. So we can worship you with our whole life. God, I pray that you would teach us something tonight different than anything we've learned before, God. Give us a hunger for your word, a hunger for your love, and for your presence. God, I pray that we just appreciate you for all you do. In your son's name, amen. Amen. You guys can be seated. If you want, you can open your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. We are studying through the book of Mark. And just for those of you who haven't been here, we'll back up just a second. We'll be starting in verse 18 of chapter 2. But while you turn there, just to to give you a brief overview backing up as we started the book of Mark. Mark makes a quote from the book of Malachi in chapter 1, verse um, verse 3. A voice of one calling in the desert. And that's a quote from Malachi. It's It's one of two times Malachi is quoted in our New Testament. So we went back and we studied through the book of Malachi, which out came this concept that the people during Malachi's day, they were asking the question, where is the God of justice? And God's answer to that as we studied through for seven weeks was, I'm coming and I'm here, return to me. But where is the God of justice? And then we get to Mark and Mark begins to answer this question and begins, he fleshes out as in, Jesus is here now. Where's the God of justice? And Mark says, he's right here, he's Jesus. And he starts with John, and then he transfers into Jesus' ministry. And as we walk through, we see Jesus go, and he's baptized, he's tempted, he calls his first disciples. And as we've talked about, the book of Mark is it's doing two big things. One is defending the divinity of Jesus, because Mark is writing into a Roman cultural world where mostly Romans are receiving, Gentiles are receiving this message, and they would automatically connect the person who was crucified with a criminal. Why? Because when they hung you on a cross, it's because you did something wrong. It's not because you're God. And so when you hear this story, when men show up and begin to tell a story, men who are following Jesus were followers of Jesus, most of them Jewish to begin with in the New Testament church, they show up and they begin to share this message. Hey, you're a man, you're broken. God's made a way for, for you to know him. He became flesh and we killed him on a tree. 
the automatic response is, why am I buying into this? So Mark is writing to defend who Jesus was, to defend the divinity of Christ. And then on the other hand, you've got that one big concept that's being communicated. The other big one is, how do we respond to God now? And so today it's going to play out some. As we talked last week, we, we covered um, very practical things that were coming up. Two practical things. We got to Jesus healing a man who was paralyzed. You've got four men who picked up a pallet. Jesus is teaching in a home. People are, are coming in, in thousands to listen to Jesus. Hey, actually, there's not thousands in the home. But they are crowding around so much around this home that no one can get in. And there are four men that pick up either a friend, a family member, an acquaintance, someone they knew who was paralyzed. They pick him up on a mat, and they go on the roof, and they tear the roof off, and they drop this man in. And the story goes, Jesus says he saw the faith of the four men. And what did he say? He said, son, your sins are released. They're set free. They are forgiven. And then perceiving what the Pharisees are thinking, Jesus says, and again, defending the divinity of Jesus, Jesus knows what man is thinking. And so he sees the Pharisees, he knows that they're thinking, you are a heretic, you are crazy, because you just said a man's sins are forgiven, and only God can do that. And so Jesus addresses the situation by saying, I know what you're thinking, and your thinking is wrong. And then he says, is it harder for me to say this, that your sins are forgiven? Or is it harder for me to say, factually proving right here in this situation, son, get up, get your mouth, and walk out of here? And then he says to him, get up and walk out. And the man gets up, gets his mouth, and he walks out. Last week we talked about the four men. It says Jesus seeing their faith, a four men who picked up someone who could not pick himself up and took him to Jesus. We translated that over to our board over here in sponsoring children to eat and made a challenge. How, how many people have you picked up who cannot do that? And, and I don't mean physically walking into a hospital or to somewhere where somebody's and, and picking them up. Here we go. That's not what I'm talking about. But how many people have you stepped out on faith and said, I'm going to unselfishly make a sacrifice and I'm going to put myself in a position where I have to trust God to work in me to do whatever it is he's called me to do? Who have you picked up lately? And as we, as I thought about this week, and, and this isn't the message this week, but as I thought more about this this last week, it uh, I just started doing some numbers in my head and on my iPhone because that's where I do all my numbers and calculation is on my calculator. Um, and it struck me, it's very interesting that we as a church, and I'm not knocking our church at all, we do a great job of reaching out to those in need. And, and Rock Point does a fantastic job in our community, outside the community. However, this was odd to me. We have 437 kids sponsored. Out of We run roughly 1,500 people, which is around 800 adults. And we've sponsored 437 kids, which is like 35 to $46, depending on the organization you give to, to sponsor a kid for a month to eat. And I'm not saying, hey, here we go, and I'm not going to push all this, but it's just a very interesting concept that we're shooting for 1,000 by 2015, and we've got 437 left. To sponsor 1,000 kids for three years, it's like $1,600,000. It's a lot of money, but it struck me as odd that we as a church just raised commitments for $4.3 million to build the building, which is good. We need it. We need space. We're packed out. If you look around tonight, it is shoulder to shoulder. Do not laugh because people listen to this online. This is a new service, so if you're new here, anyways, forget In the mornings, we're packed, and we need space. Absolutely, and I'm totally on board with that. But it's 
it's interesting. And God provided a way, and it, I mean, it was it was a God thing, and God leading our elders and how we did that whole thing. I'm fully supportive and on board. Here we go, and I'm not knocking that at all. But it's very interesting that we, as a church community, as a body, we're on board with walls and doors, and let's do it. And we made a 4.3 million dollar commitment. When it came to picking up people in need, we are limping at 437. And we're doing good for our culture as a church. We're doing good, and we are limping like crazy. So like I said, as I thought, I thought that out and just made that calculation, it struck me as, oh my gosh. How, how how convicting should that be for us? How convicting that was for me to go? How many how many kids am I making it an opportunity for them to eat? How many kids am I faithfully saying, God, I'm stepping out, I'm being unselfish, and I'm going to do this? If we would all, as a church, if we said, okay, every every person in our home, for every mouth we feed, we're going to feed a mouth. We would blow that out of the water tomorrow. Done. Is that something that can practically happen in Flower Mound? Absolutely. Will it happen? Probably not. Anyways, that, there's your recap. There's your nutshell for where we've been. But I just again, very convicting. So we talked about that. How are we practically p- picking people up? How are we faithfully and, and stepping out on faith going? Okay, I'm stepping out into something that I don't fully know how it's going to work out. And that's okay. Financially, I don't know how it's going to work out for me, but this is what I'm going to do because there's somebody who has need and I have means to meet it. That's the picture here. Like we said, it defends who Jesus is and then it tells you how do you respond. How do we respond as followers of Jesus when somebody's broken? Pick them up. Take them to Jesus. And then do what you've got to do to get him there. These guys walk up on the roof and they tear some guy's roof off and drop him in a hole. And then we talked about the call of Levi. We talked about practically reaching out to those that we shouldn't be reaching out to. And we talked about how following Jesus can be offensive to those around us. Because why Jesus sits down with tax collectors and sinners. He sits down with the unlovable. He sits down with the ungodly. He sits down with the unclean and says, I came to heal those who were sick. I came to save those who were lost. And as followers of Jesus, our obligation is to step out and reach those who are unclean, who are unlovable, who are wrong, who are broken, who are sick, regardless of who it offends. Which then leads us up to verse 18 of chapter 2. It says, now Jesus' disciples and Pharisees were fasting. Great. And it says, some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? And so now we have fasting. What is fasting? It's a time period when you don't eat and you don't drink. And if any of you have been exposed to um especially recent discipleship books over the last 20 years, we've taken that farther than just food 
and, and water or liquid substance, and we transfer it into that. Hey, you can fast from TV. You can fast from the radio, which I was in discipleship when I was in college, and my brother-in-law now is actually doing it, and he had encouraged me to take a 40-day time period and fast from something. And so I chose the radio that I would only listen to Christian music for 40 days. After 40 days, I was madder than I've ever been in my entire life. I'm a, I'm a music fanatic. And I'm not the guy who's pushing the Christian music thing, and I'm not going to get into that. But anyways, um, and so we've taken it farther than just food and substance that we take in our body for nutrition. However, biblically, that's what it is. Those are good things to do. If you want, if you want to not do video games, you don't want to watch TV, you don't want to eat chocolate, that's great. If you're devoting your time to the Lord, that's fantastic. If you're using that way to go, God bless you, and God is more than likely blessing that, I'm sure. However, the biblical concept of fasting is a taking in of nutrition. And it's done for a reason. And so as we look through, and we're going to flip through four different passages and just quickly give you storyline behind fasting. If you go to Exodus 34, you do not have to flip there because I'm going to move. I'm not going to read all of it. I'm going to give you a summary, and you're probably going to be confused if you try to follow in the line because I'm not going to do it very well. So Exodus 34, Exodus 34, you've got the, the nation of Israel has come out of Egypt. And Moses has led the people out. They're now at Mount Sinai, and, and Moses has gone up, and he's having a conversation with God. God has given him the Ten Commandments. And then he says to Moses, the Lord said to Moses, write down these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. Moses was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights without eating bread or drinking water, and he wrote on the tablets the word of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. And so Moses is receiving from God revelation. And he's doing so in a time period of fasting. Is he fasting from video games? No. Is he fasting from TV? No. What is he fasting from? Food and water. The man is not eating. The man is not drinking because he's receiving revelation from God. One of the points in a, t- a period of fast is that you're preparing and receiving revelation from God, meaning God is showing himself to Moses here. And, and fasting is a pl- putting yourself in position in humbling yourself, and actually translated from Hebrew, is, is called mortifying yourself before God. It's a symbolic and very physical way of putting off what you need physically and putting yourself in a position, I am humbling myself before God on my knees, on my face. I am, I am simply man, and you are God. And the picture is Moses is fasting for 40 days and receiving from God. God is showing to Moses, this is how I am now dealing with man doing so through the Ten Commandments and the law. And so he spends 40 days in this conversation, not eating, not fasting. And so one of the, one point of fasting, one reason for, is when you're receiving revelation from God. Then we're going to go to 1 Samuel. It may be 2 Samuel. i got to look at my notes. I'm sorry. 2 Samuel, chapter 12. Come on, Case. What are the Old Testament Can you guys all name the books of the Bible? Most of, who can do that? Show of hands. Let's do that one. Yeah. All of you can hold, okay, three people. That is a disgrace. I'm kidding. It's not a disgrace. You know where you can find them? In your Bible. You don't have to memorize them. If you have an iPhone, pull it out. You got them right there. Just rattle them off. Okay. Second Samuel. Second Samuel 12. This is after the story of David. You're in the middle of the story of David. So we've moved forward. We've gone from Moses, people coming out of Israel. They're still, they're not where they're going yet. They're not in the promised land. But God is now teaching them, hey, this is how I'm now going to relate to man. 
This is how I'm bringing about relationship with man. Moses is fasting. He's receiving that word from God. Then we fast forward and we get to David. David is king of that same people group years later, between 400 and 200 years later. And David has now taken who? Bathsheba, who was the wife of Uriah, and he's had sex with her and made a baby. Whoops. And so Nathan has come to him. Not only has he done that, but then he's brought Uriah home. He's tried to make a make a, a cover up. Hey, I want Uriah to go home. I want him to think that he made this baby, and let's move forward with this. Well, Uriah, being the upstanding character man that he is, comes home, stays with David, and then he actually gets sent home. He sleeps on the porch. David keeps him again. He refuses to go in. They send him back to battle. David writes the letter. Hey, put him at the front. Pull back. And so Uriah carries his death letter, takes it to the general. Then they put him in the front. They all pull back. Uriah dies, and now it's covered up. Way to go. This is a good story in the Bible to go and say, God has not promised you success, longevity of life, and health. Why? Because in this story, does the good guy win? No. The good guy dies, which stinks. But that's part part of the whole system. Regardless, Nathan then comes to David and and tells David of his sin, convicts David, and and then the, the baby is born. Then the baby gets sick, and you see David then respond to the situation. It says in verse uh, verse 15 of chapter 12, Second Samuel, After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David, and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and went into his own home and spent the nights lying on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get up from the ground, but he refused, and he would not eat any food with them, verse 18, on the seventh day the child died, David's servants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought while the child was living, he, we spoke to David, but he would not listen to us. How can we tell him his child was dead? He may do something desperate. David noticed that his servants were whispering and among themselves, and he realized the child was dead. He asked, is the child dead? They said, yes. Verse 20, then David got up from the ground after he'd washed, put on lotions, and changed his clothes. He went to the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and at his request, they served him food, and he ate. His servants asked him, why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept, but now that the child is dead, you get up and eat. Then he answered, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows, the Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live, but now that he is dead, why should I fast? Could I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not come to me. So you see, David is spending time fasting. What is he doing? He's humbling himself before God, and he's making a petition to God, don't let my son die. And so we see one one reason for fasting is you're receiving revelation from God in preparation and the actual act of receiving that's what Moses is doing. Then we see a picture of David. David is fasting. He's not, he's not fasting to receive revelation for God. He's humbling himself and making a petition to God. Please don't do this. Another reason for fasting. We go to Jonah. Um, Jonah chapter 3. That's in the prophets if you don't know where that's at. If you need your iPhone, you can flip and look. If you know the books, you can rattle them off so they will all know where it's at. There we go. Story of Jonah. You've got the Ninevites and ungodly people. God goes to Jonah says, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. I want you to tell them of their sin. I want them to repent or I'm going to destroy them. Jonah says, I don't want to do that. He runs. What happens to Jonah? He gets on a boat. Storm happens, they throw him off the boat, big fish swallows Jonah, he spends three days, and then he vomits him back on the land. Really cool story, right? 
And then Jonah goes to Nineveh. He preaches what God has told him to do. And the Ninevites respond with, verse 5, the Ninevites believe God that they, they declared a fast and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. So you have a people group who are evil. God grabs the prophets and says, go and tell them they're wrong. I'm going to destroy them unless they change. And how do they respond to God? They put on rags, they put dust on their heads, and they don't eat making petition to God, not only making petition, but physically showing we are turning and responding to you in repentance. Please do not kill us. So fasting. Then we go all the way to Acts. Uh, and, and we see in Acts, which as the story plays out, Jesus addresses why his disciples aren't fasting. But you get to Acts, and it actually doesn't say they're fasting, but in Acts 1, you still have this concept. The disciples and those who followed Jesus, roughly 120 people after the death, uh, resurrection, spend time kind of completing earthly ministry and then ascension to heaven, tells the disciples, hey, I want you to go wait in Jerusalem. And so they go back and 120 people are waiting and they're praying. More than likely they're fasting, waiting for what are you going to do next, God? And fasting and prayer, actually, they're in the same group of here are spiritual disciplines that followers of Jesus will practice on a regular basis in a relationship with God. Fasting being for the purpose of receiving revelation from God, for making petition and showing yourself as humble before God is the purpose for fasting. And so we go back to Mark and it says, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? If we look at Matthew 6, Jesus addresses fasting and prayer both in the same token and says, Do not practice these things as those who want to look righteous do. The hypocrites who go out in the street and they pray loud prayers so that everyone can hear them or they make themselves look fatigued as if they haven't eaten so that you would notice this man is fasting. This man is doing something highly spiritual and they receive reward in terms of what other people think of them. And Jesus strictly addresses and says, Do not do these things in a public manner but yet do them in private because it's between you and God in this relationship. And it's not about what people see you do. It's about, literally, it's about humbling yourself before God and receiving from God what it is, the message or revelation or petition that you're doing. And so Jesus addresses how you are to do this, which is very interesting because he says, do this in private, do it in a way that nobody notices. And what is Jesus' what is Jesus asked? The disciples of John and the disciples of the Pharisees and the Pharisees are all fasting. It's obviously public because they know it. And they come to Jesus and say, why aren't your men doing this? Verse 19, Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the, when the bridegroom will be taken from them. And that day they will fast. And so Jesus begins to answer this question. One, he does so and he's now establishing this picture of the bride and the groom. It's a very interesting picture that we can also take lesson from, that we can pull out. Again, how do we respond to God? If we look through our New Testament and the rest of teachings with this concept in mind, with this picture in mind of Jesus as the bride, or as the groom, and the church as the bride, and then it translates into our families. Especially for us as men. 
Jesus is the picture of the groom who sacrifices himself for everyone. Jesus is the groom that responds to us in love, in grace, in mercy, regardless of who we are. The call as a follower of Jesus, as a man in a family, is to love your family the way Jesus has loved the church. Is to love your wife the way that Jesus has loved the church, regardless of her response to you. If we as men pursued our wives the way that Jesus pursues us, would change the nature of our home. Would change the nature of our relationships. It's not going to fix everything. And you're going to screw up. In the same token, if you are able to change and no longer view your role as a man in a home as what am I getting? How am I being treated? Am I respected? Are my needs met? The biblical picture literally is you take that and you trash it. And your view is now, how am I pursuing my wife and my family in the manner that Jesus has pursued me in the church? Just not an easy concept. Very difficult. Because we're selfish people. We learn that in Malachi that we are, to our core, selfish in what we do and how we think and how we respond. But yet, Jesus, God calls us as men to respond the way that he has to us. Regardless, so this picture is established, but as he's addressing the question, he's saying, my disciples are not capable of fasting right now because they're with me. Because I'm here. What's the purpose of fasting? It's to take time to humble yourself, to to refuse a physical need of nutrition and what you have to have for your body to survive. It's for you to put that aside and place yourself in a position to hear from God, to make a petition and be used by Him. The disciples are unable to do this at this time because they are following Jesus 24-7. They are with God all the time. They don't need to not eat because they're with Him. Does that make sense? They don't have to make special occasion to sit down and hear God because they wake up, hey, it's Jesus. They go to the next town. Hey, we're with Jesus. What are we supposed to do next? Oh, okay, that's what Jesus did. Here we go. It's right there. It's not difficult. And Jesus says, they can't do it right now. The practice of fasting is on hold as long as I'm here. But, he says, a day will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day, they will fast. Fasting is on hold while Jesus is here. However, he says that practice is reinstituted as soon as I am God. Why? Because it's important. As a follower of Christ, it is important for us to take time to spiritually be disciplined in in terms of fasting. For prayer and fasting both. We talked about prayer uh, a few weeks ago and the importance of and the joy of what we get from that. Fasting is something that many of us do not do. Partially because we don't fully understand. What are we supposed to be doing? Why wouldn't I eat? I'm very hungry. I eat seven to eight times a day. If I don't eat seven to eight times a day, I'm starving. Why? Because that's how many times a day I eat. So I'm used to that right now. So that's my excuse. I don't want to do that because I'll be hungry. 
which then takes me back to the 437 and your selfishness, and this is ridiculous. It's all looped together. But it's an important practice. It's a way for, and we'll get further into as we go through the gospel, how do we respond? How do we know from God? How do we hear from God? A way that you hear that you get answers when you're asking God, what do you want me to do next? A good way to find an answer is to spend time fasting. Why? Because you're humbling yourself before God, and you're making petitions to Him to reveal yourself to me, God. What do you want me to do in this situation, circumstance, life, whatever it is? It's a way that God uses It's a practice that God uses to clearly speak with us. So I encourage, if you've never done it, I encourage you, um, research it more, learn more, ask more questions if you don't understand. But if you do understand, absolutely, it's a practice that we should be practicing because Jesus says, a day will come when I will be taken and my disciples will fast. Why? So that they will receive revelation from me, so they'll know what they're doing, so they can make petitions. It's a way that we commune with God. How do we respond to communion with God? We fast. Verse 21. It says, no one sows, as he goes farther now into this, not only does he make this bridegroom picture, but then he says, verse 21, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And so as he begins to illustrate, he says, hey, nobody's stupid about patching their clothes, right? In the, in the same way you're asking me this, which I usually don't do illustrations like, hey, this is a practical illustration or something creative. Today is a treat for you all because it's the first time in... I don't know how long that I've done something like this. This is a pair of jeans. If you don't know. These are mine. This is my favorite pair of jeans in the whole world. They're 10 years old. That's right. They've been patched 12 times. And they need another patching because the crotch is blown out. The legs are gone. Some of these patches, however, I did myself. Some of them are professionally done and they're sewed well and they're done right. However, there are a few others that are not done correctly. And as Jesus says, no one being a, a wise man or knowing what they're doing, would use a not pre-shrunk cloth and sew it on an old piece of clothes. Why? Because if you do so, if you'll notice my knee here, taking a new piece of cloth that's not shrunk, and if you patch that on, what happens? As soon as you wash it, that joker rips. Why? Because the patch shrinks. You guys are not impressed with my jeans. <laughs> I was really hoping you are going to respond better to that, but you didn't. And so, literally, he uses a, a practical example. No one would take their clothes and patch it with something that's not pre-shrunk. Or a new patch. Back then, they didn't have, um, what is it called? Pre-shrunk clothing. They didn't have, they had to take cloth and they had to wash it so that it would shrink. And then, so I guess they did have pre-shrunk clothing. I'm sorry. But he says no one would patch with that. Why? Because it would make the tear worse. It doesn't make sense to do that. Then he goes on and says, no one pours new wine into wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. This is very practical. If you are a vineyard keeper and you're making wine, you're not going to take an old wineskin and put new wine in it. Why? Because it's going to break and it's going to ruin not only the wineskin, but you're going to spill your wine everywhere. And who wants spilt wine? Nobody. This is, this is another good one for the whole the, alcohol argument. If you are strongly against alcohol, Jesus offends you. This even uses an illustration on how not to waste it. Yeah. So, anyways. I'd go further into that argument, but I'm not going to because it's not the point of the message today. He's just using an illustration. He says, if he does, the wine will burst the skins and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No one pours new wine into new wineskins. So he takes the patch in the cloth, the filler of the hole, 
and says, you don't take a new cloth and sew it on because it makes the tear worse. You don't take new wine and put it in old wineskins. Why? Because the wineskins break and they pour everywhere. It doesn't make sense. You don't do it. So why do the disciples of Jesus not fast? Because it doesn't make sense. Because Jesus is there. So I, what's happening here is, is a very interesting concept because God is moving in a way that's different than he was moving before. Throughout your Old Testament, you see fasting is a very practical practice that's done throughout. Daniel does the same thing. Daniel sits down in his fasting and petition in response to what he's reading in God's Word and what he's wanting to learn and things like that. So it's something that's regularly done by those who are following God, who are seeking God's face, who are seeking to worship God. They fast. Jesus shows up and things change. Why? Because God is changing the way that he's relating to man during that time period. even to the point of fasting and saying this is something that they're not doing because they're not supposed to right now. But yet, in the end, they will. Today, what we're walking away with again is this concept of how do we respond to God. Practical ways to respond to God. There are two big ones we walk away with today. One of those, how do we respond to our families? Just in the picture that Jesus uses as he's illustrating why his disciples don't fast. You respond as a man the way Jesus responds to the church. As a follower of Jesus. If you're not doing that, you're not walking behind Jesus the way that he's called you to do. If you're being selfish, you're missing it. Not only are you missing following Jesus, you're missing the blessing from what that does to your family. What it, hopefully what that does. The other piece that we're walking away today with is how do we respond to God in light of who Jesus is we need to be taking time to fast. It's a biblical New Testament concept that a lot of us don't practice. Why? Because we don't understand. Maybe it's a little weird. It doesn't really make sense. I'd rather fast from TV. If we devote ourselves, our New Testament church, if we get to action, we see they devote themselves to the, to the disciples' teaching. They devote themselves to prayer. They devote themselves to each other in eating and sharing what they have. The full idea of a community of God. And part of that community is fasting. For us, a part of our community of God, for our response to God, should be spending time on occasion or on a regular basis fasting, humbling ourselves before God, putting on our, ourselves in a position to hear from God, to worship God and respond to Him the way that He's called us to do. On a very, very practical level, just on the surface, why should we fast? Because Jesus says, when I'm gone, my followers will fast. Plain and simple. So, again, two things we take away. How to respond to each other the way Jesus has responded to the church. Number two, we should be fasting if we're not. Number three, you probably need a support kit if you're not. If that wasn't convicting enough for you, I can do it again if you want me to, but I won't. So, anyways, I'm going to pray. Chris is going to come up and lead us in one more song to close us out. Uh, dear God, thank you for tonight. Thank you for another chance to come together to worship, to study your word. We thank you for your love, your grace, your forgiveness. And we pray for opportunities this week to love people, God. Pray that you will help us to recognize those opportunities, to take notice, uh, to step on on faith, to be used by you, to be a part of what you're doing for your kingdom. And we just thank you for your love, 
the forgiveness, the mercy that you've given us. We praise and worship and remember all that you've done uh, so that we could know you. And just thank you for tonight. Uh, we pray for a good week this week and just to be used by you. Personally, pray. Amen.